1: And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds.
1: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 210. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. The countdown carries on marching towards 11th, 11th, 11th. Do look out for volume three that's all i 'm going to say this week. <laughs> Dig into your pockets I'm going to turn things around this week i 'm going to play the main fiction straight away and then get into david ranklin 's the soundtracks movie, which is this this month, which is the inception, which say that music soundtrack is just fantastic. I even bought it, man come on. <laughs> So the main fiction this week is by Nicole Corner-Stance. Nicole Corner-Stance, What? and I probably messed up that, Nicole, sorry about that. Born in Philadelphia in 1983. Short fiction and poetry has appeared in numerous magazines and anthologies, including Best American Fantasy and Clockwork Phoenix 3. It was actually Clockwork Phoenix 3 through Mike Allen that I got to find out about this fantastic story as well. Work in progress includes a myth steampunk novel with a lady explorer, a fake tarot, revolutions and a possessed airship. If you go over to Nicole's site, there's a little short story which hasn't been published. She's actually putting it up for free there and it says to help pay for $30,000 worth of suddenly very necessary repairs to our house and property. So free little story there if you want to donate, please go over to Nicole's site. I'll put a link on to the site, please Pop over there. That will be very kind and sweet. It is narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. As just just to let you know, Amy will be back next week with her, looking back at genre history. But it's been a while since we've had Amy's voice there tickling the airwaves with stories and narration. So this is fantastic. Amy, thank you so much. And I hope everyone kind of popped over, or does pop over, to Amy's side. She kind of had this kind of whole run-up to... The Halloween, the 31st of October, she was putting like a poster D on there all related to Halloween. And that's just, that's just a monstrous kind of amount of work. So well done, Amy, and it was brilliant to kind of follow it along as well. You are a star, madam. So, Starship Sova is very proud to present To Seek Her Fortune by Nicole Corner Stance.
0: One. In the land of black salt and white honey, the lady explorer bartered a polar bear's pelt, a hand-cranked dynamo, her second-best derringer, and three bolts of peach silk for her death. "'You stole the map that brought you here,' said the witch who was waiting at the shoreline when the lady explorer had hacked her way out of the trees. At first the witch had said nothing, sitting on her heels, skinning iridescent fish into an ebbing tide. She didn't watch, though the lady explorer did, as the sea bore each raft of scales like chips of ice and fire in the setting sun, away to sea. To all appearances, the witch expected the lady explorer to recoil in horror when the guts followed. The grunt brought on by her failure to flinch could have signified anything from approval to cramp. When the witch spoke, however, the lady explorer glanced up from the water, startled. "'I beg your pardon,' she gasped, hand-to-mouth in her best, "'well-I-never' pose, while behind it her mind worked into a lather. "'It's not surprising, seeing as the crew you fly with stole that ship as well.' The lady explorer froze. A sudden terror seized her in its teeth and shook, If the witch knew that, then what else could she see? That she'd been nothing but a stupid factory girl, upswept on the wave of a rebellion and rejoicing even through her fear? That she'd had to pay her way to the factory workers turned airship crew with the only currency she had? And what she'd had to do to, in the end, to earn their respect? She remembered the tools in her hands, her skirt in her hands, the gun in her hands, "'and was ashamed. "'The boy, peering out from behind the lady explorer's hip, "'looked up at her, one hand fisted in the sailcloth "'of her slapdash trousers, gauging the tension radiating off her. "'One good startle from fleeing back into the jungle, "'or perhaps into the sea. "'The lady explorer gathered herself. "'Well, I did not come here to gawk at the sights "'like a schoolgirl at a cathedral. "'I came here for answers.' "'before it's too late.' "'She said, "'I assure you I did nothing of the "'that contraption up there tells me different.' "'Bewildered, the lady explorer looked over her shoulder "'to follow the witch's gaze up and up "'to where the airship perched with its improbable delicacy "'on the lip of the caldera. "'As the lady explorer watched, it roused and settled.' preening like a nesting hen, the size of a four-story brownstone with bat wings and rose windows for eyes. She blinked and looked again, and it was still. Water. She needed water. And she'd eaten nothing but the hardtack pilfered from that scuttled pirate-outrider for the best part of a week. Nor slept. The last scraps of dried meat and fruit she'd squirreled in the boy's bunk, then sat the door day-long, night-long, rifle in her lap. The crew would mutiny, and soon, she guessed, but hadn't chanced her yet. If she had to cut off her arm and roast it over the combustion engine, the boy, at least, would eat. She steeled herself. Her chignon had exploded in the heat. Sodden squid arms of it slapped her face, her eyes. Irritably, she shoved it back, drew herself up, set her shoulders and her jaw to hide her apprehension. She'd not come this far to be a toy for some root witch, regardless what she knew. She affected the disdainful drawl the foreman used to use, days when she'd beg early leave from the factory with a migraine from the eye strain of the close work, or a roiling in her guts while her womb built a person even as her hands built a ship. "'Is that so? I see you two are great friends already.' "'What else does it? It remembers the place where it was born,' the witch interrupted, her voice gone dreamy like a child's half-asleep, like some seers in some cave. The lady explorer snapped to attention, for she had heard that tone of voice before. "'It smelled of grease and sweat and metal there, men and women hunched at benches, piecing up its bones, its skin.' It came away like a whale rising from the dark depths of the sea. When they set its heart in place, the joy leapt up in it, flew out of it like lightning. The discharge of it killed three men, just fried them where they stood, like a basketful of eels. The smell, <laughs> she chuckled, you should see your face. It remembers the taste of you as well, blood and bone. Before the lady explorer could react, the witch seized her bad hand, held it up so that the empty finger of her glove fell slack. Instantly, the sense memory flooded her, despite the intervening years. A stab of panic as her hand caught in the struts, a snag, a drawing in. The other worker shouts, a sharp, wet crunch. She jerked her arm away. "'It says it never meant to hurt you.' She still felt that finger sometimes, or its ghost, hoisting the boy to her shoulders, hacking through brush, burying her people, unburying other ones, sighting down the rifle's length. It still knocked her aim just out of true, if she permitted it, which she did not only by pulling well more than her weight on the crew's endless expeditions would she maintain their fragile tolerance of her own infrequent ones, and she'd be damned before she showed those bastards any weakness. If you know all that, then you know why I'm here. I didn't come to fence with witches. Did you not? Her face cracked along its fault lines into a quiet smile. A pity. As the barter was brought down from the airship and the lady explorer disappeared inside the witch's little house, the boy drew cities in the white sand with a stick, shell fragments for carriages, and leaf spines for streets. By now he was good at waiting. It took much longer to make a city than to have a card revealed to you, even if it was a fortune-telling card, as his mama had explained, an answering card, a card that tells you secrets. He couldn't count high enough yet to know how many secrets his mama must have been told by now. A great many, he was sure. He imagined her as a mama-shaped penny candy jar, each secret a bright, sweet bauble nestled behind the cold glass of her skin. He picked the biggest shell carriage up and marked it with a charcoal from his pocket, one messy-haired, smiling face that was his mama, one smaller, smiling face that was himself, Turning, he tossed the shell into the sea and watched as it skipped four times and sank. He knew from his mamma's stories that there were cities down there, too. When the lady explorer emerged from the little house, she looked paler, grayer, older, lighter, and heavier at once. But her arms were still strong when she picked him up and swung him. "'It's time to go,' she said, and he rode her shoulders back into the tree line." When the jungle shut its curtains at their backs, the sun went out like a lamp, so that when he closed his eyes against his mama's hair, the wet, sweet smell of rot was all he knew. The vast, dark stingray of the airship stirred and lifted, and as it rose above the canopy, the lady explorer held her son up to one of its eye windows, so that he could wave goodbye to where they'd been. Offshore— a thrashing in the water caught her eye, which her field glass soon revealed as a pod of dolphins harrying a shark. My sins, she thought, and smiled grimly down at them. My sins. Two. In the land of silver trees and golden fruit, the lady explorer bartered a case of tawny port, "'the captain's quarter's folding screen and roll-top desk, "'a sterling filigree tea service, "'and the airship's only drop-glider for her death. "'What's the vintage on that port?' the scientist inquired, "'almost before the lady explorer, her son, "'and two of the airship's roustabouts had unpacked all the crates. "'Still breathless from the climb to the laboratory, "'the lady explorer stuck a hand in blind and rifled the Excelsior.' It had gone damp with the temperature shift to the glass, and the bottle that she grabbed was cold to the touch and slippery. She hefted it and squinted, half because her eyes betrayed her, half to hide the twinge her back gave as it straightened. She couldn't help conflating her bones with the airship's bones, each joint gradually tarnishing, gradually grinding down from shiny brass to verdigris. 1866. "'She read aloud and improvised. "'A fine year for the—' the scientist sneered. "'You wouldn't know a fine year if it bit you in the leg. "'The not-particularly-well-turned leg, I don't doubt. "'Just look at you, bristling at me like a mad dog. "'Your stance, your hands, you're utterly transparent. "'Rings on your fingers and engine grease under your nails. "'That corset's the only thing keeping your spine "'from snapping under the weight of that vast, empty skull.' "'Feigning at quality, madam, suits you ill.' "'Hating herself for it, she dropped her gaze. "'Snickering at her discomfiture, he crouched beside the crates, "'and as he did so a light glanced off his ankle, catching her eye. "'From there a slender silver chain ran a few yards "'to the leg of a long table laden with flasks and beakers "'and the disassembled skeletons of automata.' the table she now noticed was bolted into the floor the skin where the chain had bitten was greenish and suppurating when she looked back the scientist was staring at a window no wider or longer than her forearm at where the airship waited quiescent mantling a lane flanked with marching rows of pomegranate trees The look on his face reminded her of the look on her own, back when it was someone else's airship and she and fifty others were working themselves half-dead to build it. The sudden sympathy she found she felt slowed her reaction to a staring inutility when, beside her, her son drew a long pistol and brought it to bear between the scientist's eyes. Speak to my mother in that way again, he said airily, and you'll be scraping that smug look off the wall. "'I suppose,' said the scientist, "'I may as well be charitable. "'That,' he pointed at the crates, "'is utter swill, "'but I can take it off your hands. "'Perhaps it will serve to degrease "'the hydraulic fittings. "'Now then, shall we get this over with?' "'Long accustomed to this dance, "'her son left the laboratory "'before being asked to, "'ushered the roustabouts before him, "'and had the grace not to slam the door "'at his back. "'Nonetheless,' "'His gut clenched with the certainty he'd seen the scientist, "'who was readying some vibrant fluid in a crucible "'that was a clockwork raven's head "'over a flame that was its heart, "'cast him an ugly smirk as he went out. "'His mother was occupied in inspecting "'a half-clockwork, half-organic specimen, "'which bobbed in its pickling jar "'amid threads of its own flesh and flakes of its own rust. "'She'd seen nothing. "'The three men sat in the hall.' He counted himself a man now, for his voice had nearly stopped cracking—ah, now that was an embarrassment he wouldn't miss—and gambled rifle cartridges and chores and coins upon a weathered pair of ivory dice that lived in the pocket of one of the roustabouts, the story behind the acquisition of which was subject to its keeper's whim. Today he'd cut them from the belly off a black wolf in a pine wood by a lake, along with an L of scorched red velvet, a flintlock pistol "'and a mismatched scattering of bones. Three scapulae and five clavicles,' he pronounced grandly, "'but no mandibles or frontal plates at all.' "'At this point the lady explorer's son knew "'the roustabout had been practicing his reading "'with the lady explorer's medical journals again. "'While tempering his learnings on human anatomy "'with a blithe disregard of the respective sizes "'of a wolf's mouth and stomach, and immediately decided to outgrow his long-lived fear of the Rastabout's yarns. The dice had earned him a week free of maintenance duties and a tidy heap of coins, round, ringed, hexagonal, octagonal, brass, copper, silver, lead. By the time his mother emerged from the laboratory, flushed with agitation and worrying at a sleeve, when she forced a smile and reached a hand down to help him up, he did not quite disdain to take it. Most of the coins he left on the floor in a sudden fit of apathy. His favorite only, which he'd been palming as a good-luck charm throughout the game, he pocketed. Its reverse was obliterated, but its obverse bore the likeness of a very young girl with corn sheaves in her hair, beneath a coronet of seven-pointed stars. The tears she wept looked oddly dark. Leaving, he could not help but notice the utter silence from beyond the laboratory door, He cast a furtive glance over his mother, but could discern no bloodstains on the skin or cloth or hair of her. Besides, he reassured himself, he would have heard the shot. In the land of violet storms and crimson seas, the lady explorer bartered the spare canvas for the airship's wings, five files of laudanum, the last kilo of salt, and the auxiliary power supply for her death. Her eyesight failed her in the rain, so her son read out the water-warped, mold-furred tavern sign to her, the Rotting Shark. He hoped she could also not see the look of surprise, half tender, half annoyed, that he found himself wearing at this admission of her mortality. Up till now he had fancied her close kin to the automata ageless so long as her clockwork was wound or her engine was fed for a moment he looked as though he was about to speak then noticing her utter absorption in the door he sighed and fiddled with his cuff instead the noises from within the building were what they'd by now come to expect of such places "'Drunken shouting, and below it, lower-keyed tones "'from what card-sharps and cut-purses and gunslingers "'took delicate advantage of that drunkenness. "'Someone walled a marching song "'from one war or another on a flute. "'A crash as of a flung chair followed, "'and the music stopped. "'In a moment, two men stumbled out the door, "'bearing up a deadweight third "'who bled heavily from one temple. "'This time I stay with you,' "'The lady explorer's son informed her. "'She looked away over the rumpled crinolines of meadowland, "'lying as if discarded at the trackless fly-blown foot "'of seven gangrene-colored hills. "'As she watched, a dark bird stooped and hammered down "'on something unseen in a stubbled field. "'Then she shrugged and shouldered through the door. "'A figure hailed them at once from a far table. "'They crossed the room and sat.' The shape across from them was hooded, but the voice had been a girl's. When she pulled the hood back, the lady explorer's son nearly shouted in alarm. The girl was two girls, bound together as in the cases of some twins he'd seen in the medical journals, but by some kind of ivy, not by flesh. Green tendrils had grown through the trunks and necks and heads of both, binding them together like a corset, hip to temple. A thick finger of ivy had crooked itself through one girl's eye, "'just missing the others where it threaded through her socket, "'squashing the eyeball sideways, but not quite bursting it. "'We were expecting you,' the ivy girls said, "'their voices tightly harmonized and not unpleasant. "'The lady explorer's son wondered by what perverse whim of nature "'the ivy's tithe had been no greater, and no less,' "'than a certain fraction of their loveliness. "'The lady explorer wondered whether they'd ever been able to climb "'or dance or run or keep a secret. "'From a long way off we saw you. "'We saw a woman who escaped the slow grind of a wretched death "'only to become obsessed with it, stalking it "'as any starving hunter stalks his prey "'and wasting as acutely every time it flees his snares.' A grail quest, a fool's errand, a dog chasing its tail, and yet she persists. Before we tell her fate, we would comprehend her folly. The lady explorer glanced over, but her son was sitting with arms crossed, gazing back at her with defiance. She sighed. When we built the airship, she began. One of my tasks was to hold the tray of wires and electrodes when the master engineer connected her controls up to her heart. I could barely hold it still. I couldn't feel my hands. The calluses from stitching wings. Every night I'd go home and touch my stomach where the baby grew. A sidelong glance at her son, who flinched away, embarrassed. And every day I felt it less and less as if he was slowly disappearing, or I was. She flexed her fingers, staring as though she expected to parse sudden revelations from the caked grime of her gloves. And so all the workers bided their time until the airship was completed? Tell us, were the first whispers of rebellion yours? She almost laughed full in their faces, remembering how near she'd come to pissing herself when the shooting began. How another worker had thrust a gun into her hands, and she'd stared at it, aware only in a vague sense of how it fired. How she'd hidden under the workbench with her belly to the wall so the bullets couldn't reach the baby without passing through her first. How she'd stayed there until the sounds of shooting turned to scavenging as the workers loaded up the ship they'd won with anything they'd found to hand, and she was dragged out by the apron belt and tossed aboard a spoil amid spoils. What she said was, the airship's switchboard was full of dials and toggles, the only intermediary between the captain's will and the ship's. I watched the engineer set each piece into place and wondered whether somewhere inside me there was a switchboard just like hers, with dials to show all my potential fears, potential loves, potential deaths, Who knows what becomes of us in the other world? Why might we not have a choice? Might it not be that each time my death is told that that dial stops and where it stops becomes the truth? And if I reject the death it tells, maybe I can start the dial spinning once again. Until it stops. When someone tells a death I can accept, I'll let it stop. I'll keep on searching until someone does. "'The girls eyed her closely. "'But what the ivy tells us,' they said, "'so shall be.' "'That's what you all say, "'you tea-leaf readers, card-turners, "'guts-scryers, hedge-witches, table-tappers. "'You're all the same. "'So far I should have been shot, drowned, "'stabbed in an alley, run down in the street, "'fallen off a widow's walk, been shipwrecked, "'hit by lightning, and perished of consumption "'in a garret.' And yet I am here and asking. Once they'd given her her death on a folded slip of paper and she had gone her way, the Ivy girls went hooded out into the rain, watching the airship shake the water off its back like a dog, bank hard and vanish over sea. Lies of omission are still lies, said one mouth, while the other one said, she really ought to tell that boy the truth four in the land of blue ice and red lichen the lady explorer bartered half of the phosphorus matches a fox fur waistcoat the least mildewed of the down quilts and the airship's rudder for her death the whaler had been stranded on the ice shelf some twenty-odd years when the airship touched down and hailed her more as a formality than anything she was tattersailed barnacle encrusted glazed with ice and the lady explorer half expected to see mary celeste or flying dutchman emblazoned on her stern what was there however was a palimpsest of christenings something unintelligible overpainted with lydia in what looked like long dried blood Someone's sweetheart the lady explorer surmised in the wan scraps of her worldliness "'Some woman out of a widow's weeds two decades gone "'and taking solace where she may, she wished her well. "'For half an hour, the airship's crew signaled the Lydia "'with flags and phosphorus flares, "'while the lady explorer checked the navigational instruments "'against five different maps and shook her head at each of them in turn. "'At last, the lady explorer, in a white rage and the crew jubilant,' "'They readied the salvage gear. "'Just as a few of the men were beginning "'to swing grappling hooks over their heads "'and others to cheer them on, "'the engine tender spotted a group of figures "'approaching across the shelf, "'each dragging two or three frozen ringed seals behind him, "'bound together by the hind flippers "'and strings like sun-dried fish "'she had seen once in a market "'on the bone-white shore of a blood-warm sea. "'Later, Over the last of the airship's Darjeeling, they sat around the Lydia's reeking tri-works, the earthbound ship's crew and the winged ones, and the Lydia's bosun read the Lady Explorer's death in the swirling oil of the tripod. When the bosun whispered that he'd seen into her ear, the Lady Explorer set down her tea, clambered down onto the ice shelf, and began to walk. Slowly, faltering... Her legs leaked strength like water through cupped hands these days, and her joints screamed every time a foot shot sideways on the ice. She'll come back, the bosun told the lady explorer's son when he hissed a curse and stood, brow creased with equal parts concern for her frailty and anger at her stubbornness, to follow. They always do. How will she find her way? The ghosts will show her old flinting trails. The bosun pointed out across the shelf, where, some half-mile inward from the Lydia's berth of ice, a vast red stain bled up out of the endless white, like over-dilute water paint. It spread, growing tendrils that stretched out in turn and doubled back and looked as the lady explorer's son's field binoculars, and the last light informed him— very like the wakes of bloody-booted footprints, tacking back and forth around the suggestion of some hulking shape he could not see. What did you tell her? he asked at length. The bosun's eyes went misty. That she'd go out in a blaze of glory in a dogfight with a man-of-war, all hands lost, and she'd plummet from the sky like Lucifer aflame. The lady explorer's son sighed. "'Well, what do you want me to have said? It's what I saw.' "'I don't know. Something.' He tipped his head back, watching as the first pale stars came out. "'She's like an old man sleeping in his coffin to get used to the idea. "'I wish one of you would tell her something that would make her send it off for kindling "'and get back in her goddamn bed.' "'Nothing wrong with preparing to greet the spirits on the far side of the river.' "'said the bosun primly, picking tea leaves from his teeth with a whalebone pin. "'Not unless when you do greet them,' the lady explorer's son retorted, "'you find you have nothing at all to say.' "'Returning along a strange red path she hadn't noticed on her journey out across the shelf, "'the lady explorer found the Lydia's crew trying to force the airship's rudder to fit "'where the Lydia's once was,' and the airship's crew strapping a new rudder in place with an elaborate harness that put her in mind of a spiderweb. The harness was seal sinew, and her son had carved the rudder with the tools they'd salvaged from the factory from a single block of ice. Almost pieced back together, the grinning bosun told her as she passed the Lydia, patched the hole in her hull with some pitch off a merchantman gone astray a few years back. A few dozen more seals, and we'll have enough skin for a sail. Her nerves were still raw from mediating the barter for the rudder, and her heart still kicked her every time she recalled how her son had come to her aid against their crew and vowed to get the ship back in the air. And though she'd tried ten times since then to catch his eye and smile, he had never looked her way. Coming round from the prow, somewhat stung at her son's apparent scorn, It nettled her to discover that, for her part, she could not quite meet the gleaming violet placidity of the airship's regard. She made a shy-eyed gesture at the makeshift rudder, then held up her bad hand for the benefit of the airship's compound gaze. "'Now,' she said, finally hazarding its stare, "'her face unfathomable. We're even.' The new rudder took them eleven degrees south before it began to melt— When it had shrunk from an outhouse's size to a steamer trunks, then to a tabletops and a saw blades, the airship's crew set her down on the water and took shifts paddling with whalebone oars, following their collective guesswork of unfamiliar constellations south. Four days cruising from its landing, a hunting pod of orcas surfaced around the airship and chaperoned it straight to landfall some six hundred miles on. During this leg of the journey, great clumps of kelp and cairns of fish were given to appear on deck, always at night, always when nobody stood watch, and by no agency that anyone on board could later rationally explain. 5. In the land of gray houses and gray streets, the lady explorer bartered the greatcoat off her back, the machete and flensing knife from her belt— the copper honeycombs and amethystine glass of the airship's compound eyes, the compass round her neck, the rainwater cistern, and the shorn iron-gray length of her hair for her death. She tired quickly here. She told herself it was the sullied air, the oppressive angle of the light, the smell of dust and gin and desiccated violets coming off the flocked wallpaper of the medium salon, but her hands were veined and mottled. Her memory and bladder failed as often as they held, and she did not believe her own lies. She flew a ghost ship, now. The crew had pooled what they had gained and kept over the years to purchase a retrofitted wash basin of an airship from the shipyard outside town, which they'd, somewhat amusingly, she thought, renamed the Swan. They would break the bottle on her bow within the week, and then she would take wing. Her own airship, or what was left of it, rested in the yards, lonely as a boat in dry dock, while she and her son paced the warren of its rooms like restive ghosts themselves. In what her quest did not ransack from the captain's quarters of the airship, the lady explorer's son set her down on a rotten chaise and took her hands— more to pin her in place when he stared her down than out of any outward tenderness. Reflected in her dulling eyes, he saw a figure trapped as if down a well and glaring out at the world it could not reach. With a mild shock, he realized that it was himself. He forced his gaze back to her. "'Look at you,' he sneered. "'Have your damnable dials stopped yet?'
2: And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
0: You've one foot in the grave already, and what do you have to show for it? Has it never crossed your mind that none of your precious mountebanks can tell your fate any better than I can? "'Look here, at the scuffing on my boot. "'There, that looks like a swarm of bees, "'and there's the river you jump into, trying to escape them. "'These pebbles stuck in the mud on the sole "'signify the rocks you forgot you had in your pockets. "'And, sadly, you drowned.' "'He paused, trying to collect himself. "'You look me in the eye and tell me that this—' "'He gestured at the room, once fine, "'now as though ravened at and left for dead.' and at her, once strong-armed and sharp-eyed, now rotting like a windfall full of wasps, and at himself, that any of this was worth it. She eyed him very closely. Do you honestly think that this, that any of this, has ever been about me? Not waiting for an answer, she shook her hands free of him and left. In her absence, he took a deep breath, counted to ten, let it out slowly, and when this failed to have any noticeable effect on his level of serenity, he took four long strides across the room and swept a shelf full of framed daguerreotypes and conch shells and hurricane lamps to the floor. For a moment, the crash appeared to satisfy him. He turned halfway, then spun on his heel and punched the wall. From the wall came a whirring and a series of reproachful clicks, and then a panel in the wainscoting slid free, releasing a bloom of mildew and two folded sheets of paper. Both were yellowed with age and buttery soft with re-reading. The softer and older looking of the two he recognized. The words were centered on the page in a clump, outlined by a long-armed globular shape which... "'in turn, was flanked by smaller outriding shapes. "'A few squiggles off to either side of the central mass suggested waves. "'Mama, because you always have your nose in your book of maps, "'I will hide this letter there, disguised as a map. "'If you are reading this, I have tricked you, and I am sorry, "'so please do not be angry.' I met some boys and girls on the beach yesterday when you told me to go play while the grown-ups sold some things at the docks. I tried to play with them, but they laughed at me and kicked sand on my trouser legs. They said that real boys and girls live in houses and have pet cats and Sunday shoes and governesses. They did not believe that I could live in the sky and still be a real boy. One bigger boy said that I must be a gull boy or a crow boy, and my mother a bird. I struck him in the nose. It bled. A lot. Still, I think I should like to live in a house. I do not know what Sunday shoes or governesses are, but I did like to play with Jacob's cat before we had to put her in the stew. P.S. I am also sorry that I spilled your ink, but I needed a shape to draw my coastline from. "'I told you that little Cora did it. "'That was a lie. "'Please do not be angry about that, too.' "'The other was unfamiliar. "'My darling child. "'Oh, I cannot call you so any more, can I? "'For you are a grown man now, "'and I an old woman, "'and much like a madwoman in an attic, I fear. "'As far as our fellows are concerned, "'I do not doubt your sentiments toward me are similar.' Well do I deserve them. To my shame, I have not been wholly frank with you. I cannot undo my errors now, but I can perhaps patch up some few of the holes that they have rent between us. When we stole the airship, I was but a girl, a working girl of twenty, with engine grease in her hair, and all over bruises, cuts, and scars from her own labor, a girl just strong enough to stay aboard the ship. "'give birth to you, and there fight to remain. "'But a girl just silly enough "'that when we stopped outside a town to make repairs "'and a traveling circus joined our little camp "'and those of the crew with the spiritist leaning "'asked the circus fortune-teller to tell theirs, "'I went along. "'What the fortune-teller told me "'was that our airship would be crippled by a broadside "'with the ship of the line "'and drift through equatorial waters.' "'deadlocked as a clipper on a windless sea, "'and that I would perish of starvation "'along with most of the crew and my only son. "'It was in that moment "'that I became the person you have always known me as. "'After a life of hardship, "'which until then I had accepted, "'I resolved that I would fight "'an unseen enemy and a formidable one, "'and perhaps one who cannot be defeated, it is true,' "'But I could not leave you to that awful fate, "'or to any of the others prescribed to me over the years, "'because, as perhaps by now you will have guessed, "'each death that I was told was mine, "'but it was not mine alone. "'I have seen you shot, drowned, stabbed in an alley, "'run down in the street, fallen off a widow's walk, "'shipwrecked, hit by lightning, and perished of consumption in a garret. And it haunted me. But what haunts me more is this. Would those deaths have been mine alone if I had not sought to keep you close? Will my attempts to rescue you lead you to your doom instead? Though I fear I shall never have the courage to say it to your face, it is my one remaining wish that you get out. Get free of this, and live your life as best you can. And perhaps, one day, find it in your heart to forgive one foolish old woman who sought to protect you by keeping you, by keeping both of us, encaged. And now I am off to deliver this letter before I change my mind, lest I give the crew reason to think that a woman who has learned to repair a combustion engine in freefall or shoot a tiger between the eyes at ninety paces is afraid of her own son. P.S. It turns out that I am not as brave as I had hoped. It is three months since I wrote this letter. I will show it to you this evening upon your return from treasure hunting with the crew and then likely flee to my room like a child from a strange noise on the stair. The lady explorer's son stared at the letter for some time. At the shakiness of the penmanship, the smudges from re-reading, and the date at the top, some six years gone. Then he folded both letters back up together, put them back in place, and went to pack his things. "'The spirit sends resistance in your soul,' the medium said to the lady explorer. As the table rose and sank, and the chandelier flared and dulled, and the curtains snapped against the panes in a gale-force wind, localized specifically to themselves. After giving the lady explorer ample opportunity to admire these phenomena, the medium took up the mirror in which she'd read the lady explorer's death and swaddled it in black silk. "'You're like a ship fleeing a storm with no sails, no bearings, and no port to pursue. I have dealt with spirits that did not know or accept that they were dead. You seem not to know how to be.' "'or accept being alive.' "'That evening, the lady explorer stood on her balcony, "'watching as the airship lurched, unmanned and blinded, "'up through the city's widow's weeds of coal-smoke "'toward its maid's may-wreath of sun. "'Once it dwindled to a crow, a flake, a moat. "'She took herself back inside her newly-rented rooms,' threading her way between heaps of pelts and boards of butterflies and oddly fleshy potted flowers that would not survive the snow. At her desk, she sat, dipped her pen, and in rusty penmanship with a quavering hand began to write, "'The worlds within us and without us are the same. "'In one as in another, we delude ourselves "'that there are new lands to discover,' virgin territories awaiting conquerors and claimants, while in truth there are only lands to which we ourselves have not been. Some trepidation is natural, then, on the final approach to an unfamiliar landmass, looming with presumed malevolence on a glittering horizon. Perhaps the airship would find itself a new batch of disheartened, wanderlustish souls to keep a company, Perhaps it would return for her, or for her son. Perhaps it would be grappled down by scavengers, flayed for parts, before it reached the sea. Or perhaps it would fly on, uncrewed and uncommanded, flaunting for the ghost ship hunters and the tall tale-tellers, and what children did not flee its shadow when it spread its wings against the sun, until the years dissolved it, as they dissolved her, "'and it fell in clinker from its perch of air. "'Her head grew heavy, and her pen stopped. "'As she dropped down into sleep, she found herself smiling "'as she replayed in her mind how she'd returned to the airship "'from the mediums that afternoon, to find that her son was gone. "'The thread she always kept tucked in the edge of the false panel "'in the wainscoting was on the floor, "'and on her pillow was a sheet of paper.' It was one of the recruitment broadsides the Swan's crew had been passing around town, featuring a wood-blocked airship folding her wings against her hull to stoop upon some hapless prey or other in a placid sea. When she turned it over, penciled on the back, she found the note. "'I have seen Sunday shoes and governesses, and I prefer the sky.'
1: there you go thank you very much don't forget that story came from clockwork phoenix 3 check that out mike allen has you know kind of it's all everything's linked in and everything isn't it (laughs) but if you go over and you know mike allen was kind of editor of that collection as well and Clockwork Phoenix 2 and 1. Pop over there and say hello as well. I'll put a link onto Clockwork Phoenix. And I will put a link again onto Nicole's site. Next up it is our very own. I'm saying very old. Bless me. This is the second time he's been on. David Ranklin. Sound kind of soundtracks from the movies just extraordinary. And he's done this one. This is my kind of little plug. I says, David, 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 what'd you do? Inception? And like I said, that just soundtrack just made the film, you know what I mean? Great film. You know, did anyone remember the interview I did with Lu- Lucius Shepard, he kind of pulled it apart. And he hey, right enough, he kind of knows his onions when it comes to films. So kind of go back and check that interview out with Lucius Shepard. It's somewhere in the archives. I couldn't even tell you which one. And he made valid points, you know what I mean? He was saying the female character in there was just really there for kind of dressing and everything like that but I loved that film I thought it was fantastic little kid he had a sweetie shot watching that one it was fantastic but David with his knowledge of kind of movie soundtracks just kind of can dig in deep you know to the soundtrack and give you a little bit more in, in you know not advice but just information about it and this is fantastic and David says as well He's getting some great ideas, but if you want anything kind of checked out or, you know, kind of delved into, drop him a line. You know, he says his email at the end of this little fact article piece, but drop me an email as well, starships over at gmail.com. David.
2: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the universe of science fiction and fantasy music, sound effects, and the amazing creative minds that make all of that possible. And special thanks to Tony for inviting us aboard the starship. This time we're going to listen to and understand the mysteries behind the great sci-fi psychological thriller, Inception. The soundtrack and movie took the world by storm in summer 2010, but the teaser actually came out a year before in 2009, and it had distorted, massive sounding music that right away told you that this was serious and far out movie making. In fact, there was a prominently featured blaring trombone part in one of the early trailers that turned out to be an element that would actually show up in the movie itself. But how it got there is a fascinating story. Christopher Nolan actually started work on the screenplay for what would later become Inception back in 2000. It went through many revisions before it was finally greenlit, that is, given permission to get produced as a movie. After all, these things cost a fortune. It turns out that he had a premise of people being put into a deep dreamlike state, but with a kick, that is, a stimulus that would bring them back to reality. Very similar to the way people who are in deep hypnotic states are given a stimulus, a kick, to bring them back out into waking world. And the kick that he chose for his characters to use was a song, an old French pop song from 1960. It was Edith Piaf's Non, Je Ne Regrette Rien. It has a prominent trombone part in the beginning. And that trombone part turns out to be the inspiration for the trailer, the kicker, and it was incorporated into the soundtrack itself, all in different and wonderfully creative ways. There are two key concepts in the Inception screenplay. One is that you can have a dream within a dream, even a dream within a dream within a dream. The second is that as you get deeper into a dream state, time slows down. This idea is reflected in the soundtrack. Our composer Hans Zimmer chose to use this idea with the kick song. First though, let's listen to the song in its natural state. Maybe you noticed there's a repeating note trombone pattern. Bum, 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 bum. And that's the DNA, that's the musical sample that is the basis for almost the entire Inception soundtrack. All you have to do is start slowing it down, let's say by 300%. The main theme from Inception. Now let's hear them segue the Edith PF song Slowed Down and the main theme from Inception. It's amazing how It really is the same thing. How about another 300%? deepest level of dreaming, the slowest layer of time, and the dramatic high point of the movie. Very effective stuff. Now, there's a lot of other kinds of music. It's a movie that has a complex and exciting story that also has very important tragic romance and straight-out action movie elements. So let's listen to the actual opening music, Half-Remembered Dream, that uses synthesizers to create an eerie, dreamy world. Half Remember Dream from Inception. There's an important film noir love story element to Inception, and here to play that theme is Johnny Marr. He's a famed electric guitarist. You might remember him from a 80s band called The Smiths or his current band, Modest Mouse. He has a big, highly processed electric guitar sound that helps give the same weight as the highly processed synthesizers and orchestral sounds. It's a, it's a beautiful piece, and we're going to hear a bit of Old Souls. Excerpt from Old Souls, from the soundtrack to Inception. That's the sad, dreamy, weird, romantic music featuring Johnny Marr guitar. Let's hear what Hans Zimmer has to say about his choice of guitarists. Well, it sort of
1: bad sample of guitar sounds and I started coming up with this little tune and it was like I knew at that moment who I was writing for. Okay, so it goes, goes up again then, right?
3: He said he was going to get somebody... Somebody like Johnny Marr was how he said it, you know, The Smiles First, which, of course, to me, that was exactly who we were
2: going to be playing it, which I was
3: excited about from, you know, knowing Johnny Marr's music from The Smiths. That
2: was quite a good one, yeah. As you can hear, Zimmer and Christopher Nolan were pretty confident that that was the right player. That's an important part of creating a soundtrack. You have to cast the performers, like actors, the right player for the right part. Now let's go to what's perhaps the most famous part of the movie, the one that took the world by storm. Everyone was imitating it. Even South Park did a a parody of The Dream is Collapsing. This is music that's played basically when their attempts at creating an artificial dream start to fall apart. And it really has this massive, tragic action element that all of the orchestra is pounding away on the simple chord progressions. It's unforgettable. from The Dream is Collapsing, featured in the smash hit movie Inception. Now for the next deeper level of dream and action, we have a sequence set in mysterious snowy mountains. This was actually filmed in Canadian Rockies, but it's taking place in a a dreamscape in the movie. The director Christopher Nolan had a specific movie in mind that he wanted to emulate. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, there's a thrilling ski chase in that with a rousing soundtrack by John Barry, one of his best. So the music in this sequence emulates parts of the Barry soundtrack, mostly in the chord changes and some of the orchestration, for instance, having um, electric guitar, rock drums with a symphony orchestra. This is a long cue that has elements of the mysterious ambient dream music and the pounding the dream is collapsing music and a bit of the sad romantic music along with some driving action skiing themes it's just a wonderful piece of film music that like all good film music brings together different elements moment to moment that keep up with the action that's on the screen and also have an inner life that brings out the inner energy and emotions, the magic of the movie. From Dream Within a Dream from the Inception soundtrack. Now, there's a section of the movie that takes place in Mombasa. This is one of the important production principles in making the movie seem epic that it's really shot all over the world and these locations are enhanced with visual effects. And to a significant degree, the music is also enhanced with a combination of electronic effects and orchestral effects plus music that would make sense in that location. So from Mabasa, we have this driving polyrhythmic ethnic sound that is completely different than anything else you hear in the the movie, but it makes for great action music. And when there are other action sequences, um, especially ones that involve less dream magic and more just hand-to-hand combat, we get this same driving ethnic rhythm. The amazing percussionist is Satnam Ramgotra a Canadian-Indian drummer multi-percussionist who gets an incredible groove going. the soundtrack to Inception. Now let's hear what Christopher Nolan has to say about music in his films.
3: I want to kind of hear where his imagination would go, Were it completely free to just interpret the ideas of the script. And then based on that, we take that in the edit suite and we start finding interesting points of synchronization between the picture and the music. Hans is a sort of minimalist composer with a sort of maximalist production sense. So you'll write these incredibly specific and simple pieces, but the way in which you'll then record that and produce that is on such a colossal scale and with so much movement and drive that there's a point where, particularly in Reels 6 and 7 on everything we've done together, we just let the music take over everything.
2: That's Christopher Nolan speaking about music in his films and particularly in Inception. Now some amazing facts about the production the recording of the Inception soundtrack. The electronics were done in Los Angeles by a team of eight programmers and sound designers plus additional composers creating ambiences and developing themes for specific cues. There was also a team of eight orchestrators and additional composer to help with the orchestral music that was recorded in London. All of this sound was put together by the amazing Alan Meyerson, an engineer who frequently has to deal with hundreds of separate music tracks that all have to be blended together into a seamless whole. Now let's also think about the size of the orchestra. It's about a hundred players, but the brass section, that is amazingly large. There weren't three or six, there was 12 trombones. We're getting into the 76 trombones led the big parade territory here. And that added to four tubas and eight French horns is a massive brass section. It's something where you actually feel the impact of the sound when they play all together in the same room. I'll tell you, there's no wonder that that soundtrack had such a huge impact the recording took place over a period of weeks during the production of the movie itself. So Zimmer never actually got to see the finished footage until after Christopher Nolan and his team of editors had begun editing the movie and the music together. So this was an interesting interplay, collaboration between the director, the composer and the editor, and the composer developing moods, atmospheres—a kind of library of music that could cover film noir, romance, or high-tech action, or mysterious dreams—and that was used with the music editors and the film editors to create a seamless tapestry of filmic entertainment. Hope you enjoyed these excerpts from Inception, one of the best soundtracks of 2010. That's it for science fiction soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction, fantasy, video game, TV, soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Contact me, David Rakeland at cinematicmusic1 at gmail.com. Be sure to check out my blog at www.davidraikland.com. D-A-V-I-D-R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. Music and interviews copyright their respective owners.
1: There you go. at the culture the show's got, man. Come on. So that it is. I don't know what that meant to say there. got <laughs> teeth gone. So that is it. I hope you enjoyed it. As well, do check out Sofa Notes this week. I'm quite proud of this one. It is Mr. and Mrs. Vandermeer. Yes, Jeff and Anne Vandermeer. Come on, Starship Sofa, Sofa Notes there. And we talk everything about... They've got a new anthology out called The Weird, which is just a massive undertaking. Do you know what I mean? A thousand and odd pages. Do you know what I mean? And it looks actually stunning what a kind of book it does look. But we also... I also ask Anne... Of course, I don't know if you kind of know anything about Anne and who editor, editor over there We Weird Tales. Or was editor over We Weird Tales until somebody else bought them out. And that person wanted to edit Weird Tales. And Anne was kind of pushed out. So I've asked Anne all them kind of questions as well. And she's like, and it's lovely because she's just open and honest about it. So do pop over there and listen to the Sofitort Show with Jeff and Anne Vandermeer. Don't forget, you know, if you want to kind of help donate... Please pop over the website, donate away there. That'll keep the old girl running high and high and dry until next week. Just like to say, goodnight from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal?
0: Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment?
2: Tune in next week for the
0: next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a evacuation procedure initiated. Shovel set for us. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.